Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. We all know that when fraud is involved, our lives are often pretty unpredictable. And so that is a big reason why we're switching up the format for the podcast this week. Usually we have interviews with an awesome guest on Tuesdays and then often a solo episode from me on Thursdays. But this week, today, you get a solo episode from me, and it'll be a deep dive into the MGM and Caesar's cyber attacks and the implications it can and will have on fraud departments, probably internationally, for up to years. And although I had an awesome interview already recorded and lined up for this week, because of this news and how much it seems to be dominating the tech space, I was able to get in touch with one of the best social engineers and now an author and social engineering trainer that I know. And he'll be joining me on Thursday's episode to specifically dive into the social engineering attack and provide tactical and practical advice to share with the other teams in your company to spread the word on how this attack works and what can be done now. And next week, you'll get to hear from the guest that I recorded with a couple days ago. They have a pretty big announcement um, for the e-commerce and fintech fraud space. So I'm excited for that. So have to wait another week. So first, I know that this isn't a cybersecurity podcast, right? And what happened uh, to MGM and Caesars was definitely a data breach or a hack um, or ransomware. I guess we don't want to say data breach yet. We don't know if it's been extracted, but it has been encrypted so that uh MGM and Caesars don't have access to their databases and their active directories, and um, they've been held ransom. That's what we know of now. Now, I'm recording this on Sunday evening, so two days, one and a half days before this comes out. So there may be even more information out when this is recorded, but uh, I will be sharing everything uh, that I could get a hold of this far. I actually spent a long time uh, compiling notes for this episode because I wanted to make sure that it was uh, full of facts and uh, would be helpful for uh, anyone listening. But even though this isn't a cybersecurity podcast, I mean, often people, especially in the outside world, get us confused with cybersecurity professionals. Um, in fact, my own podcast producer has been a part of the fraudology team for almost two years, and he kept sending me texts last week saying, you have to talk about this. And I'm like, I'm not in cybersecurity. But the more information that came out about this attack last week, the more I started to think there are definitely some points that should be shared with fraudologists. It can be easy to see a headline about hacking and data breaches and think eh, that has nothing to do with me. But in actuality, we should be paying attention. Because we're basically downstream and the next on the list to be victims of any hack, especially those that result in PII being exposed or stolen. PII being personal identifiable information, your name, your phone number, your social security number, your date of birth, uh, your email address, all those things. That's PII. Because online fraud departments are directly affected by data breaches uh, from any company, not just your own, right? It doesn't matter if there's a data breach at your company or not. Most of the time, it's not at your company. But that information is being used to monetize on your website. So I started to agree with Lucas that this is an important uh, situation to cover. And so like I just mentioned a minute ago, I'm going to talk about it here in this episode to kind of give you background on it, as well as talk about how it's really related to fraud and what we should be on the lookout for and expecting as the fallout continues, as well as, you know, having Robert Kerbeck back on the podcast on Thursday. If you didn't listen to that episode that I interviewed him back in March, I highly recommend that you do so. He lived a very interesting life as a corporate spy for over 20 years. 
getting quite sensitive information out of some of the biggest companies uh, in the world. And now uh, he's written a book, so he's no longer in the corporate spy business because he outed himself. Uh, conveniently after any statute of limitations were up, if there was anything that was a little more dark gray and blackish that he that he might have done, not just you know gray area in the middle there. But now Robert has really become a great expert on social engineering. He knows how sometimes simple it can be to extract data from very large companies or extract access. And so uh, he and I are going to talk specifically about the MGM breach as well as some related topics on Thursday's episode. And I highly recommend it. In fact, I really think that it will be one that you can share with other teams within your company. Uh, This one might be as well, but especially on Thursdays because he's so fascinating. He really shares information that I haven't tips that I've never heard anyone share before, uh, at least publicly. So uh, I know you're in, we're in for a, a treat. I was going to hold off and wait to have him come a second time until his television show uh, based on his book was you know, getting ready to be released. But now with all of the strikes with the writers and you know SAG and everything else with the actors, I don't know how long it's going to be. And this is just so topical that, you know, sometimes we have to pivot. And I think uh, it'll be really fascinating. So on today's episode, in addition to kind of providing a little bit of backstory on what happened uh, specifically with the MGM and the Caesars hack, although Caesars is kind of tacked on, it's not as well known as MGM. And I think that's, well, I know that that's because there weren't as many effects on their guests. And that was what made headlines first. So then we'll talk about what was exploited, what data the cyber criminals have access to, what fraud tactics we need to watch out for specifically uh, once the dust settles on this, and you know what you can do about it now. While we wait to see what happens to the terabytes of data that were exposed from MGM and possibly Caesars, but are currently being held ransom. And for those of you who often maybe have a hard time explaining the difference between cybersecurity and online fraud, or just for anyone who may not you know, really know the difference yourself if you're not in one of those. This is kind of how I try to explain how online fraud and cybersecurity are related, but aren't identical twins. In order for a cyber criminal to commit a crime online and to profit from that crime, they need to do three things. One, get usable data. A data breach is one way to get a lot of personal identifiable information in relatively short amount of time. It's not the only way. And as there are more, there's more focus on security and trying to prevent data breaches, they uh, often get more creative, but that is one way. And that's the way we'll focus on today. And then next, they need to commit the crime. They need to use the stolen data to make fraudulent purchases, withdrawals or transfers from banks, any way to turn that data into money. Sometimes it's through identity theft. Sometimes it's through uh, account takeover. Sometimes it's through using a stolen credit card. It really depends on the type of data they get and what can be done with it. And then the last thing they need to do is cash out. Sometimes that's through money laundering. And that's where AML and compliance teams often come in. Other times it's, you know, via purchasing products and fencing them that were stolen with, you know, credentials or payments or refund claims fraud for a profit. Sometimes that's, you know, on a third party marketplace. Sometimes they're fencing it to sell overseas. All of that varies. And just to clarify, most cyber criminals do not do all three of these things. In fact, a lot of them nowadays specialize in one and they'll specialize in a subset of one of those ways. So, you know, they might just focus on getting usable data and just on data breaches. And once they get that data, they'll sell it to people who are going to commit the crime and use it to monetize that data. And then there might be other people who are you know, working on the cash out part. So there's so many different pieces There, it, there was definitely a time when Cyber criminals had to try to forage for, you know, the data and then, you know, do everything themselves. That's not that time now. We're really in the fraud gig economy, as I've talked about several times in the podcast before. So you no longer have to be a specialist in all things. And actually, that's going to come up in a minute. So uh, specific to this hack, there was actually a hacker collaboration to be able to make this one happen. And, you know, as much as I'm a big fan of collaboration, I, uh, prefer that the collaboration happens on the good side. The bad side, that's too easy for them to do and always just, you know, makes things a little bit harder for us. 
So in the case of the MGM hack last week, uh, even though protecting your users' data isn't your job at your company, some companies are small or it's unclear if the InfoSec team is proactive or if they primarily rely on their third-party partners to keep their users' data safe. So that's another reason why I thought it would be good to talk about this and give a little bit of the background from the cyber side, uh, which I often joke that when it comes to cybersecurity or even super technical things about technology, fraud technology, I sometimes say that I feel like my proficiency is the same as it is in speaking Spanish, where I understand so much more than I can speak off the cuff. Honestly, actually, when I was younger, uh, before I was 10, I did speak Spanish fluently, but that is another story for another time. And then we moved uh, away from the town we were in where, you know, 80 to 90% of the kids in my school were from uh, other countries in Latin America, and I just kind of got rusty. So it's kind of like that with cyber. I can speak it, but I can understand it so much more. So, um, but I know that there's probably not a lot of like cybersecurity experts listening to this. So hopefully uh, the fact that I've simplified this will be helpful. Um, I also just think it's really important for everyone to understand the fraud supply chain. We've kind of talked about this a little bit, uh, kind of like when um, Ayala at Bigger 11 came and talked about the importance of knowing uh, where your company sits on the scam life cycle. It's important to understand the fraud supply chain. Where are most of the data, where's most of the data that is used to monetize on your website or with your financial institution or your fintech? Where does that often come from? Does it come from breaches? Does it come from credential stuffing and guessing? Does it come from bin attacks or, you know, mod 10 algorithm hacks? Like what, what are those? Um, and then also because, you know, when you know where the data comes from, it can be helpful to know what types of fraud to watch out for. And then, you know, also understanding your part in it and where it goes from there. And there's several different kinds of fraud supply chains. There is not just one. And, you know, like I said, I think each company should know the most common paths, you know, to and from their company. So I'll also be giving you a few tips on how to leverage some of these headlines into more exposure for your team, uh, into what you're capable of and the data you have access to, and to reassure your leadership that you're a great resource. Additionally, should this data be sold and turned into another fraud tsunami and chargebacks or write-offs greatly increase, you can refer back to the email you wrote this week to say, hey, remember when I mentioned this could have an impact on us? I do find that you know whenever you can demonstrate that you're what a couple of my clients have called a fraud psychic, you know, hey, I said that was going to happen and that's what happened uh, without telling you, telling them too many times that I told you so, but more, hey, just, you know, that was something I was afraid of or something like that. That adds to your credibility. Okay, so let's get into this MGM. So the first news we got was last Monday on September 11th. Um, early last week, resorts in Las Vegas with uh, properties including Mandalay Bay, the Bellagio, Luxor, the MGM Grand, the Aria, uh, they all experienced a cyber attack that locked thousands of guests out of their hotel rooms and affected various systems from any pretty much anything that relied on technology was down. The attack was detected on their systems on September 10th, so the Sunday night before, and it disrupted company emails, reservations, room key access, casino slot machines, ATMs. It was crazy. On Monday, I remember uh, the day of the attack first, you know, being exposed. There were a lot of, you know, tweets or X's, whatever we're calling it now that Elon Musk has changed the name from Twitter to X, <laughs> but, um, of people who were locked out of their rooms or the only way that they could pay for a drink was with cash because they couldn't, you know, use their room key. Um, well, they couldn't use their room number because the system to verify the last name that's on file with that room number was down. Uh, so it was just a big mess and people could not get into their rooms. And a lot of the technology was down for four days. I do believe that they figured out how to let people into their rooms before that amount of time. I also saw a couple reports of people who were at the slot machines at the time that the systems went down and they couldn't get their money out, uh, whatever money they had won or had left from what they put in before. I joked with my husband, like, I wonder how many people are going to claim that they had a jackpot right before the breach happened, uh, right before the systems were taken down. Or, you know, maybe somebody, a lot of people will say, I had $5,000 in there. I had $10,000 and maybe it was $50 because there's no way to 
verify that. These are just like, you know, minor types of fraud, but it's always where my brain goes first whenever anything happens. I'm like, oh, this is what's probably going to happen. I guess that's kind of how I get the name fraud psychic sometimes. But, you know, it's not because of a superpower in that way. It's just being around long enough to know what the causes and what the effects are going to be of good and bad actions. So MGM Resorts promptly initiated an investigation with external cybersecurity experts. They informed law enforcement and took measures to protect its systems and data. We know a lot of this because MGM filed an 8K form. It's a report that companies must file with the SEC to announce major events that shareholders should know about. That's a file form that they have to file in the US. Companies generally have four business days to file a Form 8K uh, for an event that triggers the filing requirement. Uh, the nature and scope of the cyber attacks are still under investigation. Uh, the company's website was temporarily unavailable and guests reported difficulties, uh, as I said, accessing the rooms, making purchases, using ATMs and credit machine, credit card machines. A lot of you who uh, attend or at least listen to the podcast around the time that uh, the Merchant Risk Council annual event in Vegas takes place, uh, that actually takes place at an MGM uh, property. And I could just only imagine what it was like for anyone that was at a conference that week. In fact, one of my clients was in Vegas for a conference that week last week, but they were not staying at an MGM uh, property. In fact, they were staying at a newer hotel in downtown Las Vegas in kind of the older part of Vegas, which was the first time, but that's where the conference was held this week. And I talked to my client midweek and he said, especially because of what was going on on the strip at so many of the properties, he was really happy to be in another part of town. I would have been too. Um, and then this incident followed a 2019 hack of MGM resorts, which impacted over 10 million guests, but primarily, and then this is the part, this was from the article that I pulled and did a summary of, but you're going to hear a little side note rant here in a second, because this is what they said, um, which impacted 10, you know, over 10 million guests, but primarily involved contact information rather than financial data. So I'm just like, hey, reporters, and I want to scream this anytime I see anything like this, see it on TV or in an article. When be when breaches primarily involve contact information rather than financial data, that's not something to like relieve the public about. In most cases, contact information and PII is worse to consumers, and it's easier to monetize for cyber criminals these days, like in the 2020s. And also it doesn't change, right? You can't change your, well, you can change your phone number, but that's a big mess, right? You can change your email, but a big mess. Much harder to change your address, much harder to change your social security number, anything like that. So I just, uh, I get very frustrated whenever there's anything in an article about uh, no financial information. Well, guess what? If it was credit card numbers, they could be shut down in an instant. That's why uh, so many, well, that's one of the two reasons why so many data breaches don't go after credit card numbers anymore. The other reason is PCI. You rarely, if any time, see credit card numbers being exposed in a large scale breach through online. If they are exposed through some kind of a hack or malware, it's oftentimes in-store uh, terminals and POS systems. But a big reason for that is after Target and Home Depot, they realized, oh, the banks can see where the you know, everyone that shopped at those point of compromise and can put holds on the cards or can reissue the cards right away. And then they have no value. But if you get their username and password at one, one website or you get their, you know, their name and address and, you know, all of that information that can be used over time because most users are not changing their password on a regular basis. And, you know, at least 86% of consumers are using the same passwords for multiple accounts. So, and they're not gonna just think, oh, you know what, I need to change this password because I think it's the same one that I use as Hulu and Hulu was breached back in, you know, almost 10 years ago now. So that's how we have those things happen. So I don't know, it's just a side note. I know there's probably not any, you know, anyone from the press here, but it just drives me crazy. I thought that, I, you know, I'm sure I'm in good company and that uh, y'all think the same thing. So just from the first article on Monday that I read, um, I was already speculating the cause, not that, again, this is not me bragging or anything, but you know, when this is kind of what you breathe in every single day, there's a lot of things that you can just read through the headlines, right? And I was thinking, uh, oh no, it's probably some kind of social engineering through a phone or business email compromise or phishing or malware that they got access into the system 
And then they're probably doing ransomware just because of the all systems were down and there really wasn't any quick fix. So a few days later, there was, you know, a couple of updates. One that I found fascinating that I thought I'd just share because I think you guys can also read through these things like I can. One was that uh, the MGM website was directing customers to use their rewards app for bookings. And my thought was, okay, if every single system that's on an MGM server is down, but they're routing people to use their rewards app, then chances are it's probably because that site is hosted by another company. I know that I actually could have done some research to find that out pretty easily, but I legitimately didn't. But, you know, after working with enough tech companies, I know that that's possible, right? For loyalty or rewards or, you know, your own credit card, you can have a third party host that. So um, that may have helped with retaining some revenue. There were some um, estimates that MGM properties made a total of 40 million a day. There's actually some people that think that that seems low. Um, I guess it depends on how you calculate the casino incoming, which I can't even imagine for an accountant how hard that is. But but 40 million a day is still nothing to sneeze at. That's a lot of money. And for all their systems to be down for at least four days, that's just one cost of this incident that they're going to have to add up. Um, another thing that I found fascinating in an article was that MGM uh, said that they were going to waive change and cancellation fees for guests that would arrive before September 17th. That's just until Sunday. So, I mean, I was optimistic, I guess, that it'd be fixed in a week, but I don't know if they've extended it or not. But uh, whenever I see that, I smile because um, that is smart chargeback prevention. You know, uh, waiving change and cancellation fees for people who are like, uh, maybe I'm not going to go stay at that hotel or maybe I'm not going to go to Vegas uh, because I'd like to be able to get into my room. It's smart to, you know, provide to waive those fees because it's way cheaper to waive the fees and keep the, you know, full amount that they paid for those rooms and give them a credit or change the dates or whatever it is than it is to give all of that back on a chargeback. But I'd imagine that they'll still probably get a lot of chargebacks from guests at their hotels, you know, that stayed at their hotels that week. I mean, if you had no access to your hotel room, no slot machines, no way to see entertainment, you know, on the premises or anything like that, you'd probably call your credit card company. And we also know, and I know this from working in travel for quite a while, some people will just find any excuse that they can and they want to find any excuse they can to call their credit card company and have them so nicely give them the money back, you know, not knowing that it often gets pulled from the merchant. I'm not necessarily blaming issuers on that. That is the way the process is. You did not uh, write those rules. Maybe you had you know, a hand in it, but you didn't write them. But, um, you know, so obviously you're going to benefit from it. But it is frustrating as merchants to not have a ton of control over that. Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. So what is Sardine? I mean... Other than a small oily fish in the herring family, Sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you. Benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard and API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other business models. For some clients, they use Sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, Sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. Okay, now switching gears, I'm going to start talking about a group called Scattered Spider as they uh, are a hacking group 
uh, that has really taken off in the last year or so. And they're the ones who claimed responsibility for the MGM cyber attack. And a lot of reports suggest that they were also behind a similar attack on Caesars Entertainment around the same time. So in a filing with federal regulators in the U.S. published before the markets opened on Thursday, which I believe was the 14th, September 14th, Caesars confirmed a breach where hackers stole its loyalty program database, which included sensitive customer data. We know that when loyalty program databases are stolen, it's not just all of the customer's information that can then be reused so many times, probably their username and password, but it's often the balances of their loyalty points. And so how easy is it for, you know, after the hack, if the company isn't able to switch over those account numbers or, you know, anything else for access, how easy is it to just log in as those users if you have their username and password and drain all those loyalty points? We know from, you know, companies that have you know, pretty strong loyalty and rewards programs that ATOs to drain those stored credit are rampant. Whether that's a credit card company or airline or a retailer, it doesn't matter. And obviously, you know, loyalty and rewards help people choose your company over and over again. I know I certainly do. You know, I choose who I'm booking my uh, flights with or anything like that based on the loyalty programs I'm involved in or the credit cards or that kind of thing. So it's good. It's just that it makes them more vulnerable. So they confirmed the breach where, you know, hackers stole its loyalty program database, which, you know, included sensitive customer data. And I think there's a little bit more information about Caesars down here. Um, here, I'll skip to that. So reports had suggested that Caesars paid a $15 million ransom to Scattered Spider, but the company declined to comment on the matter. So it's likely that they did allegedly, but because they haven't confirmed it, I'm going to say allegedly like six times around that just so that, you know, I don't get in trouble. Um, and as for MGM, currently there's no clarity on the ransom amount uh, being demanded by the hackers and the extent of data exfiltration in the attack has not been publicly disclosed. So let's see. So the group Scattered Spider seems to target organizations for financial gain, and they reportedly use social engineering techniques to gain access to corporate networks. Scattered Spider's members include young adults and teenagers, and they operate primarily in Western countries. I read one article and then I can't find it now, but it said something about how Scattered Spider has been used a lot for their social engineering tactics, you know, basically social engineering as a service for some of the hacking groups that are out of Russia, because if they were to call IT help desks or employees of companies in the US or the UK or even Europe, their strong accents might give them away or may not you know, be as trusted to, you know, may not be as uh, believable that it's someone that works there. And so that's one theory as to why uh, this group has become so popular so quickly. Uh, the FBI is investigating uh, both the MGM and Caesars incidents, although authorities advise against paying ransoms in such cases. And, you know, usually what happens in ransomware, and I'll talk about it in a minute, is that somehow, you know, the hackers get access to your system, right? Social engineering is the easiest way because these are often your lowest paid employees in help desks and customer service, or sometimes it's even, you know, a third party, it's outsourced, but they still have the keys to the kingdom. They still have the ability to give people access to your systems in, in various ways. And so oftentimes when they're not trained well and they're not trained, hey, you need to take a step to think about this. If there's a request out of the ordinary, you know, all those things that Robert and I are going to talk about on Thursday, if that doesn't happen, then a lot of times people in customer service, their entire goal is to provide good customer service and to do what the customer asks. That's what they're graded on. That's what they get promotions based on. So it's really hard for them to say no. And especially when social engineers are really good, they're going to make it so they won't say no because they'll be afraid of losing their job or something like that, right? Somebody calls and pretends to be a senior executive from the company. You're going to do whatever they ask if you are a low-level employee. You're not going to really honestly think about it too much. And that's what these guys count on. Also, I just wanted to point out and reread this one part that I read a second ago, that Scattered Spiders members include young adults and teenagers. This is a trend we've been seeing, especially since COVID. When kids weren't in school, there were a lot of young adults and teenagers, especially young men, who found, wow, I can you know make a lot of money this way. And there's not a lot of risk of going to jail. And I don't have to go to college. And this is a trend we've seen a lot, especially if you're ever in Telegram or Discord reading some of the groups uh, that are in there talking about committing fraud, it's often young men. And you can tell based on the slang and just 
other things like that too. So Scattered Spiders stated that it obtained six terabytes of data from both companies, but does not plan to make the data public. So as I was saying, they get access to the system and the company in some way by, you know, oftentimes it's vishing, which is, you know, voice phishing, so calls. Sometimes it's business email compromise by sending an email and having them click on malware, or malicious, malicious software that can get into the network, things like that. Uh, but then once they have access to the network, then they go in and try to get access to as much information as possible and lock it down so that the company, the victim company, can't access any of that information. And it's essentially like a kidnapping. That's why it's called ransomware. Um, I remember the first time I ever learned about ransomware, it was gosh, was that 2013? I spoke at a pretty small event. It was invite only at the NCFTA uh, headquarters at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh. It was mostly for law enforcement. And there was someone from, was it Department of Homeland Security or the FBI that started talking about ransomware? That was 10 years ago. And I just remember thinking, well, that's scary. But I mean, you know, at least I'm not in cybersecurity. It's not going to matter to me. Huh. Well, it does when the ransom isn't paid and the hackers want to make money somehow. So they sell all the information because they monetize it when they do that. They're either going to monetize it by having the company pay a ransom and will often give back the encrypted information or give them an encryption key. Sometimes they've already duplicated the database and they will get paid on both sides, once through the ransom and once through selling all the data to cyber criminals that will then monetize it. So um, they you know, claim that they had um, six terabytes a day, but they don't, um, they don't plan to make the data public. They didn't comment on whether they had asked for a ransom, although it can be assumed that that is why, especially because in reading a few reports specifically about this group, they are financially motivated. So the only reason they're going through all this effort in quotation marks is, you know, trust me, I, in my opinion, I don't, don't think they should go through that much effort. But the reason why they're doing that is for money. It's not for ideology. It's not for their ego. So if they, you know, like I said, if they don't plan to make it public, they plan to monetize it somehow, which most likely means that they've asked for a ransom. So uh, Caesars reported on um, September 7th, the hackers stole data from a significant number of its loyalty program members, including driver's license numbers and social security numbers. So for any company that's in fintech or consumer lending, banking, uh, those are things that you should be highly aware of uh, is that, you know, now granted, uh, there are reports that the data from Caesars has not been made public, but uh, I'm just always leery on that because, you know, is there honor among the thieves? I mean, not really. So how do we know that they didn't copy it and maybe they'll hold on to it for a little while? It's actually in the MGM uh, data breach of 2019. It wasn't until a few months into 2020 that those lists were actually circulating. So sometimes they'll hold on to it for a while. So people kind of forget about it in quotation marks and then slowly start selling it. And it can be difficult for anyone on our side to even know the source of the list, right? Which data it was from. Uh, law enforcement is often pretty good about that because they can access, you know, a lot of different information from different companies. But usually if it's, if you're on the banking side or the e-commerce side or fintech, it can be really challenging to say, oh, that's from this breach, except for timing. And if they're holding on to it for a long time, it's hard to know. I mean, unless it's also specific information, but there's enough breaches out there that have things like driver's licenses and social security numbers that it'll also blend in. So Scattered Spider is known for its effective social engineering tactics and has been linked to over a hundred intrusions in the last two years across various industries. The FBI is investigating both incidents. Yeah, they, I'm sorry. I took this from a few different um, articles. And so that one it probably, it says it more times than I meant for it to be. I also read that, you know, Scattered Spider was uh focusing on telcos and other types of companies, as well as um, business uh, software organizations, like third party vendors. But uh, now they're going to the casino route. And one theory is because casinos have a lot of money and they're 24 hours. So it does a huge damage to the business for their systems to be out for hours, if not days. So they're more likely to pay the ransom. Right. Same with a telco, right? Like if all of their users don't have access to their cell phones or their mobiles, they're going to have a lot of upset customers and they need to get that up and running. And so sometimes the path of least resistance is to pay the ransom, even though, again, the FBI advises that no company should. And you are taking a gamble because you don't you're taking their word for it. that They didn't extract the data and make copies. So 
the cyber attack on MGM Grand allegedly was carried out. So this is where it gets kind of weird. And I don't know if I really need to go through all this. But the social engineering call was perpetrated by scattered spiders. But then the actual ransomware attack was carried out by the ransomware group Alf V, also known as Black Cat. Not Black Hat, Black Cat, C-A-T. I kept hearing, I kept, every time I heard a report, I thought they were saying Black Hat. And I was like, like the conference. But um, also, you know, we know that Black Hats is also just a term used for uh, hackers that are doing it maliciously. Um, so as reportedly initiated, so this is where it gets interesting. So the scattered spiders uh, actually bragged that the they were able to get access to MGM's uh, entire database through and actually their entire active directory through a 10 minute phone call using social engineering tactics. The group claims to have found an employee on LinkedIn and then called the company's IT help desk to gain credentials to infiltrate and access MGM Resorts International Systems, effectively shutting down its properties across the U.S. So, you know, if anyone in customer service ever thinks that they don't have any value or they aren't effective, just think about the guy who took a 10 minute phone call and unknowingly gave access to his company's entire system and server uh, for a data breach. Oh my gosh. And if you think you're having a bad day, at least you didn't do that. And I don't blame that guy right? or the person, right? I don't blame the IT help desk person, nor should MGM. Mm -hmm. It goes back to how much does the company invest in training in their people? Most companies that are of large sizes invest millions of dollars in protecting their systems and their infrastructure. But then they leave this door wide open on the side, essentially, where people can get in. So the theory is that Black Cat or Alpha V hired, probably hired scattered spiders to do the social engineering aspect. And then Black Cat uh, went ahead and uh, once they were given access, went in and locked down a lot of servers uh, with specific encryption. I went down that rabbit hole, which I'm not going to try to explain on a podcast, but uh, it's you know possible for the company to access it. And then the company then shut everything else down, not wanting uh, the hackers to get access to anything else. Oh, and this is kind of what I was talking about a minute ago. Um, casinos are considered attractive targets for ransomware attacks due to their financial resources and the high cost of downtime. Uh, MGM Resorts previously suffered a data breach uh, in 2019 that exposed information of around 10.6 million customers. So now you've got this on top of that, just like the, you know, there's a telco that has had four or five breaches, I think, in the last few years. And people take notice to that. And it's often breaches of different sets of data, but still they don't feel secure. They don't feel secure. They're not going to spend their money, right? They're not going to do business with you. So both Scattered Spider and Alpha um, the Black Cat have taken credit. But like I said, based on each group's MOs, um, it's believed that Scattered Spider did the first part with the social engineering and Alpha the Black Cat um, because they're most known for their ransomware exploits. Uh, it's assumed that they um, access the third-party platform that MGM uses for identity and access management that provides the sign-in flow for their employees and clients. Does that sound familiar, guys? Because some of you are from are kind of in charge of the platform that your company uses for identity and access management, and in charge of the sign-in flow for you know usually just customers, but sometimes for employees too. Mm -hmm. Uh, so the claim also said that they breached MGM via the company's Okta platform, OKTA, uh, and Okta is a third-party provider that enables businesses to manage the logins, authentication, and access privileges of their users across a variety of apps, devices, and networks. Okta is a widely used identity and access management provider for the cloud. Um, and then they claimed that they were able to access passwords by exploiting the vulnerabilities in um Octa's servers. Um, I'm going to skip over all this other research I did because I just think it gets way too in the weeds. But Okta did warn of social engineering attacks on its systems in August, and experts suggest that it could lead to a new wave of cyber attacks targeting high-privileged users. But my question is, what are they doing about it? Okay, so they warned of social engineering attacks on its systems. Did they contact all their customers? Did they just put it like in 10-point font in a newsletter or a marketing email? I don't know. But it seems to me that if you're a third-party provider and you know of social engineering attacks in your systems, 
you should be paying for social engineering training for all of your clients' teams that have inbound phone calls like immediately within a week. Or you should, you know, bring everyone in and say, Hey, this is exactly what happened to one of our clients. Here's, you know, how you try to fix it. Get in touch with your help desk, get in touch with your customer service. You know, sometimes third party providers just put out a warning like that to kind of cover their you know, cover themselves, but um, to anyone who is a third-party provider, learn from this. Because um, there's a lot of companies that use Okta for uh, this, you know, this part of logins. And honestly, I mean, this isn't as, Okta isn't common for fraud teams to use for accessibility because usually we're further down the line. But this is often, you know, this is one of the companies that several uh, InfoSec teams use for logins into the, into devices. Um, across platforms. It may not protect against uh, account takeover, so you may need a different layer of account protection, but it's you know configured specifically for uh, InfoSec. And then um, out of six topic or six articles that I read on this topic and tried to mash together for this uh, recap, the only advice for fraud prevention that was given out in any of these were one uh, two bullet points. One is that organizations are encouraged to enhance employee cybersecurity training and verification processes to counter vishing attacks, uh, voice phishing attacks. Uh, MGM customers are advised to monitor their bank statements, be cautious of suspicious emails, use different passwords, and enable multi-factor authentication to protect themselves. This is one of my pet peeves, and if I ever had the ability to clone myself, which God help you all, if I were able to have time to do all the things I wanted to, one of them would be to, you know, try to alert the press or, you know, provide education or something to say, hey, you need to be providing the why. You can't just tell customers to monitor their bank statements or be cautious of suspicious emails. What does a suspicious email look like? Why do they need to use different passwords? What's going to happen if they don't? Why should they enable multi-factor authentication? How does that protect themselves? Because let's face it, people aren't going to do it unless they know the why, unless they know what can and will happen if they don't do those things. And same with organizations, right? Enhance employee cybersecurity training. No, it's not the cybersecurity part. It's just phone calls. And I'm not going to say just phone calls because those are obviously important and very valuable. But I feel like when people say enhance your employee cybersecurity training, it's like, you know, put them in front of a boring training on their computer for 20 minutes talking about, you know, protecting the servers. No, bring in an animated social engineering expert. Robert Kerbeck is one of them. There are others that are really good. Bring them in or hire a social engineering pen tester, which is also a thing. Have them test your systems and see if they can get past the humans and reiterate your policies and your rules and why they're there. I just blows my mind that people can just, you know, reporters just put one little sentence at the bottom of an article and like, I don't know anyone who they didn't know what any of that meant or why it was important that they'd stop what they're doing, take the time to change out all their passwords or upload a password manager or, you know, reread suspicious emails or not click on links. Like you just can't assume it anyway. So back to MGM for just a second. If ransoms aren't paid, the hackers will find other ways to monetize the data. Even if, and like I said earlier, if even if the ransom is paid, sometimes cyber criminals make duplicate copies of files to profit from both sides. And because they're anonymous, I mean, sometimes they're like, well, what are you going to do about it, right? You can't issue a charge back on a ransom for ransomware. And those of us in the online fraud space, know how data breaches are monetized. They're monetized by targeting your companies and your financial institutions with various fraud schemes. So here's my advice in a few sections. Here's what types of fraud to expect should any of this data get out. And like I said, we don't know yet if it will, but even if this data doesn't, there will probably be another one, especially with these two groups. They've really, now that they're starting to work together and they're starting to you know help each other out, I think it's pretty scary. And it sounds like especially with any companies that are using Okta. Uh, right now, it seems like that, that could be vulnerable. I'm not sure. That's kind of what I was reading through in some of the articles, but make sure if that's a company that sounds familiar, you know, double check. It's also a really good example and reason of why it's so important to ask the hard questions of third-party providers before you sign on the dotted line. And as big of a pain in the neck as security uh, analysis are, they're needed, right? I mean, especially if you're, I, I do know that some InfoSec teams, unfortunately, are you know a little old school and 
Some are afraid of APIs or things like that, but having a security review of a third-party vendor and understanding what information they're going to have from you and how it's connected and all of that is critical because you just never know. And you'd rather do all of this work now and know what's going to happen and who's going to take the liability if there's an issue and how quickly are they going to resolve it and all of those things if it does happen. So what types of fraud to expect? Data breaches like this are often monetized by committing account takeovers using uh, customer stored payment methods on the accounts uh, to make purchases, um, to drain any stored credit or loyalty points on the account, or to use an aged account for legitimacy to update a card to a stolen one and make large seller purchases. That's, you know, on e-commerce. They're also used for account takeover in banking. Sometimes it's to change the address on files. So ADS on online works, but a lot of times it's to withdraw money or do transfers or, you know, check fraud and hope that, you know, oh, well, and cash the money and then take off all kinds of things like that. Anyway, they can monetize and they may start with monetizing accounts at MGM and Caesars because they know which passwords go to those sites, not only for hotel stays and entertainment, but they also have a sports betting site that could be pretty vulnerable. And then the ripple effects to other companies with similar business types. I think I did a solo episode on a similar topic of this uh, about a year ago because there was a suspected data breach that was impacting a competitor of a company that was possibly had had a breach they actually ended up not being it was from a breach from about six months before that and then there was a lot of other things past that but that's specific to that story but i talked about how whenever credentials are stolen kind of the ripple effects and who gets impacted first and all the way out so usually the first you know companies that are impacted by ATOs whenever credentials are leaked from a specific company are companies with similar business types. So in this case, it'd be hotels and travel sites, as well as gambling sites, maybe even event tickets, because the thought is, well, if a customer used this username and password with MGM, they might use the same username and password with companies that are similar, or they might just use the same username and password for all of them. And you remember, they're not just you know checking one username and password if it's not exactly the same password as what they have on file from the company that was breached, they just move on. There are so many uh, scripts as well as some AI being developed on the other side that will adapt and guess the password. So, you know, if there's a date in there, if there's an important person's name, you know, important person in your life's name, anything like that, they may figure out the, you might think you're being sneaky, but a lot of these systems can figure it out pretty quickly. You know, maybe you have your dog's name one, you know, your dog's name plus the number one for one password, but then it's your dog's name two for another password, something like that. So they're trying lots of different combinations based on kind of the root password that they have. And then those ripple accounts, uh, the ripple effects will expand to other companies with similar business, um, that don't have similar business types. So, you know, other types of companies, you know, may be impacted at the same time, depending on how the lists are sold and distributed. You know, companies that don't have related businesses, but just sometimes they make copies of them. Sometimes they're, you know, breaking up the list into a hundred different pieces and selling out those for parts. They don't have any say on how people monetize that. And in fact, a lot of, you know, when there are multiple lists happening, it's often the case that, you know, some of the groups are trying to find, you know, they know what most people will do. So they're trying to do something else, right? They're trying to hit an obscure company that maybe no one would think could ever be related to MGM, something like that. So the more the lists are sold, the more lists that are out there, just the more chaos will ensue and kind of all at the same time, you know, there's no control over the timeline either. Consumers uh, will also likely be contacted with phishing emails from, you know, that look like they're from MGM or from lawyers in quotation marks offering money to victims of the breach. Some may call to be give up more personal information. Like if there's just a couple of pieces of information and they want more, they might call and, you know, use what little they have to already gain the trust, you know, to get more information. Uh, the driver's licenses for, that Caesars disclosed are obviously scary. Uh, depending on the states, some are easy to go online and ask for reissuance, especially if you have the you know driver's license number. And then you can ask to send it to a new address, even if it's out of that state. And even beyond that, a small handful of state DMV websites in the U.S. will allow someone to create a new account for the driver, especially if you know, that driver's never set up an online account before. 
change the address, and then have the picture changed. So they're asking for a new, you know, driver's license for this real person, but then they might have their picture put on it or, you know, and their address. That happened a lot during COVID, but it's still happening a lot with several specific states. And that's often, you know, used to impact lending, to get, you know, loans in people's names through identity theft, as well as Sometimes, you know, Frankensteining all different types of data with each other to create a synthetic ID. There's just a lot of things that can happen. I would say, but especially consumer lending as well as some business lending and uh, banks would be most vulnerable with driver's license information. And then this particular group, Scattered Spiders, um, especially focuses on social engineering, exploiting multi-factor authentication systems and SIM swaps. They also use tools like, you know, Nate Specs talked about in um, the episode a couple weeks ago when we talked about tools that are meant to stay undetected and essentially fool detection systems. There's actually a report that I will put a link uh, in the show notes to all the articles I used, including one report from... I don't remember, but it was a third party provider, but they did a deep dive report on scattered spiders before this attack. And they talked about the specific um, anti-detect tools that uh, this group uses. And even though they're primarily using all of those skills for data breaches, who's to say that they won't diversify or teach other people in their group how do you know they use these tools and go straight to monetization, right? Without any PII exposed in that breach or waiting for a ransom to be paid. They might start, you know, doing some MFA or other thing, you know, MFA attacks or other things like that, using these tactics to monetize information or to monetize and create, commit fraud, not just accessing systems to then sell that access to a ransomware group. Okay. I have just a few other tips that I wanted to share, especially as we all, it's such a popular topic and I've had several episodes on this as far as gaining exposure to senior leadership and, you know, wanting them to trust you and build credibility. So you can use this opportunity to talk with your infosec and ask what types of social engineering training they provide the rest of the company, especially those departments or people that take inbound calls at all, not just customer service or IT help desks, but also individuals. The C-suite can often be targeted for this. Also important, how much and how often is social engineering training provided? I really think it's not enough. Um, but this is a time to ask that and you have a reason to ask that. So you can't, you know, it's not like, oh, they're getting in my business for no reason. No, I you know, read a few of these articles and I'm just curious what we're doing for this. And if they haven't taken much ownership over this, ask to meet with the head of customer service and maybe offer some of your knowledge to help train their staff. Even if, you know, that staff is in different places ge- geographically or even internationally. Social engineering attempts are increasing and will often target the lowest paid people in your company. But those people also have the keys to the kingdom, so to speak. So this is worth the investment. There are some, you know, more fun uh, programs for social engineering training. I mean, one that I really like, not just on social engineering, but just in general, is Wiser, W-I-Z-E-R. Um, I keep wanting to have the founder on the podcast, but um, really great guy. And they offer uh, free a cybersecurity training education. And um, I know that they have some paid uh, packages as well, but their videos are fun and their clips are basically like uh, TikTok videos and they have recreations of scams and things like that. So they're fun. It's not just those, you know, horrible trainings that we've all had to sit through over the years. Because it's just like, you know, the it becomes a teacher in the Peanuts cartoon. You just tune them out, especially if they don't say the why. But also, like I said, there are some really great and charismatic social engineering experts out there who can provide remote or in-person training to your company, and it's more than worth it. Um, You can also use this opportunity to communicate with senior leadership on this topic. The publicized hack at MGM and Caesars this past week is just another reminder that no company is safe from cyber or social engineering attacks. But it's also important to watch this story and see what happens, because should those ransoms not be paid to unencrypt the company's active directory and give to the company, all of that data that was stolen could be released and sold to cyber criminals to monetize. And data breaches like this are often monetized by committing account takeovers using you know, your customer store payment method and all that information I shared before. You know, feel free to send an email or, you know, ask for a meeting depending on how that relationship is with senior leadership and just say, hey, this brought up a really good point. I just wanted to share with you what we're doing in our team, but I think we should be doing more. And here's this, you know, it shows that you're taking initiative. And then 
just within your team. Remind your team that if they ever speak with victims or fraudsters, not to ever give out any specific information about what you know, you're looking for or what systems are used or even their real name. Honestly, that was something that when I worked for the travel company 12, 13 years ago, we all used aliases. And I think that it's a pretty good idea because especially in the days of LinkedIn, right? And if you have a unique first name like I do, all it would take is, oh, how do you spell? that. And of course, I'm going to be like, oh, I'll tell you it's K-A-R-I-S-S-E. And then, oh, I'm going to put that into LinkedIn. Oh, I see. Okay. I see who that is. Okay. Now I'm going to call her company and um, I'm going to you know, pretend to be her and say that, you know, I need access to the fraud system. So, you know, it's just better to use a fake name um, and just don't give out any specific information, especially if it's asked for. As far as your role as a consumer, it's always a good idea to be on the lookout and to share a few tips with the people in your life. Uh, the, some of the most common ones that I share is never click on a link in an email or a social media app. If you want to go to a website, you want to see about a sale, you want to check your account balance, you want to check and see if, you know, you want to change your password to your account like the email says that you should go out to your browser and search for them. You will still find the sale within their website, right? You'll still find everything. And I know that marketers don't like this because they click on, you know, they really are capturing and uh, measuring who clicks on an email or, you know, who's clicking on the ads in social media. But, you know, just go back and listen to the episode with Asaf Kipnis if you don't know why you shouldn't click on uh, ads in social media. I think that was the second episode I did with him on inauthentic behavior. But same for email as well. Uh, I also tell friends and family to never give out any personal information to someone who calls them, especially if it's out of the blue and someone's asking for information that's out of the ordinary or, you know, they say that you owe a bill and you need to provide your credit card, even if it's your doctor's office and you know, oh yeah, I needed to pay my copay. I always say, you know, I don't ever give my uh, credit card number out or any other information out when someone's called me. So I'm just going to give your office a call and I'll pay it right away. And sometimes they're like, huh? And then I say, well, I'm in cybersecurity. It's, you know, I'm, and again, maybe it's partially our fault because it's easier to say we're in social or cybersecurity than it is to say I'm in fraud prevention. Like it just saying you're in a form of cybersecurity sometimes cuts the conversation down by like 10 minutes because otherwise you're trying to explain what you do. But, you know, often I'll just say, oh, I'm in, you know, a form of cybersecurity and I just, you know, it's kind of made me paranoid or it's a byproduct of the job. And they'll laugh and say, okay, you know, as long as I call them back and pay it, they're fine. Uh, but they're almost, you know, when scammers are calling, they're also trying to social engineer you. And they're almost always impersonating a real company that you may interact with or do business with. So, you know, or that you, you know, think you might have because, oh, I probably do have business with UPS or whatever that is. I probably have a shipment coming or, you know, they'll guess. So that's it for now. Like I mentioned, our guest on Thursday's episode, Robert Kerbeck, is an absolute legend in the world of social engineering. And he'll be sharing several unique tips to share with your teams on avoiding social engineering attempts. This is an episode that I hope you can share with your teams. You know, it's I still firmly believe that hiring you know a trainer to be taught specifically for your company and go through exercises and all of that is going to have the most value. But even if it's just hey, listen to this podcast episode. At least it can help a few people because, I mean, like I said, no one wants to be that poor IT help desk person who thought that they were just helping someone in the company that was asking for access to the system. And, you know, of course they wanted to please them and give it to them. Um, Because, yeah, like I said, I mean, a single 10 minute phone call can wind up costing millions of dollars for your company and not to mention the loss of brand security with your guests or your customers. And there's really, that's really hard to measure, but the lost dollars while the systems are down, any fines that have to be paid, any impact to your stock prices during this time, so many different things, all the chargebacks coming back from people that didn't get to use your system during that time just so many things. Oftentimes, you know, if there is a data breach, if that information is exposed, they'll have to pay for credit monitoring, which don't get me started on that and how ineffective that is, especially for a lot of breaches. But, um, you know, it's what there is. Um, but all those things add up and lawyers and cybersecurity experts, all of that could have been, you know, avoided. We obviously know in fraud prevention, probably more than anyone else, that that old saying of an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure couldn't be more true. If anything, I think we need to like, you know, change the measurements because it's worth a lot more than a pound of cure. Um, so, and then on next Tuesday's episode, like I said, my guests will be making a big announcement for the online fraud fighter community that I am a part of. Um, 
And so I get to kind of share with that announcement. It's something I've been keeping secret for about a year. Um, so yeah, for anyone who thinks because I talk a lot, I don't keep secrets. Well, <laughs> I think a lot of you know that I keep a lot of them locked in my vault, whether it's about me or all of you in some way or your companies. And I'm happy to do it. I love keeping secrets. Um, and I, it's important to me that I'm trusted. That's really what it's about. So in order to make sure that you get to hear uh, Thursday's episode as well as Tuesday's episode as soon as they come out, I hope you are subscribed to Fraudology as uh, the podcast platform that you use will uh, you know, give you a little alert when it's released on uh, Thursday and Tuesday morning. So with that, I am going to call it a day on this episode, but I hope that you guys found that interesting. I hope that uh, that was helpful to be able to explain. I know that at least for me, when I was in fraud, I would often have people in my company asking me about data breaches and kind of expecting me to have information because again, it's confusing that one group is protecting the data for the company and the other group is protecting data from other companies from being monetized on your site and you losing money. So there is a difference, but they don't always see it. So um, yeah, well, with that, I'm going to look forward to speaking uh, with you as well as Robert Kerbeck on Thursday, and I will talk to you then. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.